Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. I'm Chip Patterson. Brady Quinn will be joining us shortly. But Barton, first, we've got some some headline-worthy news this week in college football. It was ups and downs. He's out. He's in. He's going to redshirt. Derek King from Houston, he has decided that he will redshirt the rest of the season. The official release from Houston says that he's going to uh, remain with the Cougars and uh, have a redshirt senior season in 2020. His father had made comments leading uh, into the official announcement suggesting that Derek King might be taking that redshirt to preserve his eligibility so that he could go and play somewhere else. Uh, the Kelly Bryant way or the Kelly Bryant route, I guess you could say for uh, what we've seen recently. So Barton, uh, well, number one, one of the most electrifying players in college football is not going to be playing in 2019 anymore. That's a bummer. Number two, there's a, there's a lot to unpack with this in terms of, you know, Derek King, his relationship with the Houston football program, his relationship with Dana Holgerson and everything moving forward. It also gets us back into the, you know, compete Cowboys out here, you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With the, the transfer talk. So, yeah. you know, how, how do you sort of, uh, how do you approach this story this week? Uh, well, okay. First of all, a lot, lot, like you said, a lot to unpack. First of all, I would say this. I think Derek King probably, and this is just my opinion, probably plans a transfer. Uh, I think he sat down with Dana Holgerson. I think Dana Holgerson said, hey, buddy, I know you want to transfer. Just but let, give me the year, give me the season to, to convince you and show you our plan for you, why this is going to be the good, a good place for you. I'll, I will support your red shirt this year. And uh, just just give me some time to, uh, to to show you what we have planned for you and why this is the right place. Derek King says, OK, no problem. Uh, I'll give that to you, coach. But just so you know, I'm going to really evaluate my options once the season ends, see what other depth charts look like, see who's going pro, see who needs me. And I might dip into the transfer portal and explore those options. I got to do what's best for me, coach. Uh, I know you respect you respect that. And, and I think that's where we're at. And ultimately, if he is going to transfer, he can't really evaluate those options right now anyways. He's got to wait until the season's over. He's got to see who's injured, who's not, who's heading to the NFL, who's not, which uh, programs are you know, excited about their next guy up and which ones really need a quarterback. Because, hey, I mean, LSU could use a guy next yeah. year. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I don't know if he's a fit for what Georgia does, but Georgia's going to need a, transfer, a grad transfer. Uh, I mean, I don't know what Georgia's answer is going to be a quarterback next year to keep this thing going. Um, you could, I don't know. I mean, Oklahoma, I mean, they've got Spencer Rattler coming up, but hey, I'm not going to put it past Lincoln Riley to just dip in and get another Heisman Trophy winner at quarterback. He sure does love Derek King. So I'm just saying there's going to be options. There's going to be a market for his services, and I'm, I am absolutely not closing the door on the idea that he is going to shop that around, so to speak. Um, that and and so with that said, if Derek King does come back to Houston, this basically is just the, the the college football version of tanking. This this basically is 
the uh, 76ers or Miami Dolphins, you know, just, uh, you know, hang on to the, you know, basically, so you just burnt, you know, you're, you're sitting Derek King, you're going to go add some new assets in the recruiting markets, you're going to instill this culture, sort of chalk up this season as a, as a wash. This is year zero in the Dana Holgerson era. And then you, you, you pitch to Fertitta and, and that crowd and, and the Houston Boosters Club that, hey, this is a long-term plan here. Just wait till we got wait, wait to see what we got for you in 2020. And, and then you, you build from that. So I think it's fascinating to see this four-game redshirt rule continue to evolve and find different manipulations of it. I don't like the idea, not that a college football team would tank, but that Derek King, who has gone through three different head coaches, four different offensive coordinators, uh, played special teams, was a return man, was a wide receiver, was fully willing to like make all kinds of contributions and sacrifices for the Houston football program that he would sit around and uh, not be officially compensated for his services only to come back to Houston football, hoping that the team would be in a slightly better position one year later. That makes me very uncomfortable. And it makes me believe that that outcome is unlikely. Yeah. And I've seen, I've also seen that. I don't know. I mean, Brady mentioned this on uh, CBS HQ recently. Uh, I saw Jim Nagy, the, the director of the, the Senior Bowl, mentioned this on Twitter. You know, maybe Deer King would consider exploring Just going the prior? wide receiver position at because he's 5'8", and how realistic is quarterback for the NFL for him anyways. And ultimately, this is probably what this is all about, maximizing his college football opportunity maximizing his resume for the NFL and not wasting this this year uh, on a team that is clearly not going to going to amount to much in the grand scheme of things um so to to your point you know just sort of making sure he's in the best situation for himself whatever school or position that might be uh and yeah i mean it's, it strikes me as I mean, if you're going to come back to Houston, yeah, like, are they really going to be that much different no, next year? They're not. You can't, you cannot take what this Houston program has been through from a personnel standpoint in terms of uh, steps backwards. You, you like, are not going to be able to repair that right away. I mean, that's not, there's not going to be, Dana Holgerson is not going to go out there and secure the uh a top 20 recruiting class like there's not there's not going to be enough graduate transfers in the portal for Houston to be able to to turn itself into an American Athletic Conference championship contender and I love my action in the AAC through and through you know I do but I just I just don't <laughs> think that that's like that's not what you come back that you don't preserve your eligibility to come back as a 22 or 23 year old to to be playing in those games to me, uh, the options are either he is like you mentioned, maybe he's, he is going to explore his professional options during this time, sort of put out some feelers and see what the, 
um, how, how that might look for Derek King. And I think that there's also the, the other side of this, which is, um, you know, going to play big time college football for your final year of eligibility, compete for college football playoff conference championships, those sorts of things. If that's what you want to, to be able to do, because there's no doubt in my mind that there will be multiple uh, power five schools and the way that they walked this back with the, Oh no, he's staying at Houston. Like, I don't know exactly what our, I mean, forgive me uh, loving audience for not knowing exactly what the, the details of this in terms of the NCAA rules are, but whatever tampering is, and I'm sure there's something along the lines of tampering that is, there's a rule against, it kind of feels like that, uh, the wording of all these announcements has been trying to protect Derek King and whatever school may or may not be wanting his services. Also, as you look, I mean, this season, what, what, what were they expecting? I mean, were they expecting to beat Oklahoma? Well, were they expecting to be Washington State? If I there's mean, they someone, lost, they if lost to Tulane, like they still have the AAC all in front of them. It's not like they're a terrible team. If there's someone who we might or might not know who maybe or maybe didn't have a long shot flyer on Houston to win the AAC at plus 620. <laughs> Maybe that person saw the team on the field, even like two weeks into the season and tore up that ticket and was like, ah, yeah, that ain't happening. Not this year. <laughs> they yeah, but what, what, what if next year Deer King comes back and they beat Rice, but they lose to Washington State, BYU and North Texas and they start one and three again. Is it just like, is, is that... Is that season a wash all of a sudden now? I mean, I, I don't, I just don't understand what the, like, why things are, are so disastrous that you would need to, to pull the plug on it to come back next year. I get pulling the plug on it to to, to pull a Kelly Bryant and say, this isn't going to be the best situation for me for whatever reason. Let me move on. But to pull the plug on it to come back, what? How much? Like we didn't, you know, you didn't lose three conference games to start the season. He didn't. He's not been as far as I know. He's not been playing with some, you know, rib injury that's limited him from actually competing to his be- the best of his abilities. This just strikes me as as a as messaging, like you said, that is is just sort of protects all parties as Derek King actually pursues what his real goal is, which is to find the best situation for his last year of eligibility. Uh, we don't know about a rib injury, but if he were to keep playing behind this offensive line, he was going to get one. They were, yeah. they were going to kill him like that's like, and, and so, uh, before we get to Brady, I, I will, uh, introduce this little piece too, which it, when you have coaching changes, especially multiple coaching changes, it is sometimes difficult to establish that relationship between the veterans on the team and the new coach and the new coaching staff. And I amidst this, uh, all of these stories this week, I went back to, I believe it was the preseason Comments from Dana Holgerson somewhere on the long the lines of like, yeah, well, these guys, you know, they haven't been coached real hard. You know, they haven't really had to work all that hard. You know, they had to, they're uh, discussing sort of basically. I mean, essentially, the messaging was that uh, the team was a little bit soft. They'd been living a little bit of a cushy life, and they weren't really used to getting coached hard, and 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 maybe they didn't have that kind of edge. Well, when I think about Dana Holgerson uh, trying to you know, really change that culture. It probably takes some force to change that culture. And that force just might not be what some players on the Houston team, Derek King among them, 
just might not be the program that they're really trying to do. That might not be something that they're all that interested in. And I'll call back Derek King's father's quotes where he said, sometimes you know he has been very unselfish. Sometimes you need to be a little bit selfish. And I, I think that it is worth considering that the, you know, Dana Holgerson and, and this Houston football program, as much as, uh, the people that we may or may not know and others might've been jumping all over this, like, man, this is going to be awesome. This is, this is just going to take off as soon as Dana lands that ignores personalities and that ignores personal relationships and the Dana Holgerson era at Houston might need a recruiting cycle or two um, before the everything is all hunky-dory in the locker room. I'd say so. I mean, I think there's a lot that needs to be uh, be needs to be fixed in Houston. Um, and I, hey, like I said, I, I'm not I'm not saying that I would advise my son if he was in Derek King's place to to go this route. But as a college football fan, I've said this before. This is, you know, I'm, uh, this is fine for me. You know, we get to we get to let the chips fall next year, and Derek King is going to make a decision, one of the most exciting players in college football, as to where he will be able to thrive the best, whether that's right there in Houston or whether that's somewhere else. And, you know, whether it's good for the kids or good for the future generations, whatever. I mean, it's good for us in terms of our – ability to watch fun college football and exciting college football. Derek King's going to be playing in a, in a situation he deems positive for him. So, uh, you know, more power to you, buddy. All right. Where you mentioned LSU, you mentioned Oklahoma. I think LSU to me, the one that jumps out is LSU Mm -hmm. because especially if, if, if he does want to, you know, keep rolling with the quarterback and, and try to, uh, put his best NFL foot forward, then LSU, I think, is going to throw it around, but it's going to do it in a, um, you know, in an offense that will, I think, be friendly to his skill set. Um, and they've got the receivers. And I think while Miles Brennan is probably a capable guy, I'm not sure he's Derek King. And, you know, I just – it doesn't feel like it quite works at Georgia – not sure that that's that, that just that's hard for me to envision, and I don't you know. I mean, are, are there any other out others out there that are are obvious options? He originally I mean, LSU's, LSU's also right down the road. You know, I mean, it's 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 driving distance from home. He originally committed to TCU before uh, flipping to go. And to they Houston. got Max Duggan. Um, he, I mean, like I would I would roll. Would you? I, w- I would roll out Texas A and M. Uh, you you would or would not? I would I would roll them out there as an oh, option. Roll them out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, hey, Tommy Stevens is gone. We'll see how Garrett Schrader does at Mississippi State. But hey, that that could be. I think that would be kind of a fun fit. That would be a great fit. And since I and since I pulled out that TCU stat from the wiki, did you know that he broke Kyler Murray's Texas six A passing touchdown record? I didn't know that. How about that? That's good. It's good info there. Manville High School, Manville, Texas. Derek King, uh, names not in the transfer portal as it stands right now. The announced intentions are to return to Houston. We will see if that ends up happening. Coming up on the other side, 
Brady Quinn joins us to talk about Notre Dame coming off the Georgia game. Now, what he saw from being in the Coliseum for USC Utah and the future of Clay Helton and uh, the Heisman race as he sees it now. All that next. Yo, it's two-time Super Bowl champion, Bryant McFadden, also known as BMAC. Mike check, one, two, one, two. And that's Patrick Peterson, a fellow cornerback, my cousin, and now my co-host on the new podcast, All Things Covered, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. This season, Pat will go from the football field on Sundays to the studio on Mondays to bring you the perspective of an active player at the top of his game. And the name says it all. Sure, we'll catch up with Pat P on how he and the Cardinals are faring. But we'll also talk about other sports, our personal interests, and social issues. Then we'll cover even more with a prominent guest each week. With 17 years of NFL cornerback experience between the two of us, we think you'll enjoy our coverage skills. So download and subscribe now to get weekly episodes released first thing Tuesday morning. All Things Covered is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found. Everybody, this is Luis Miguel Echegaray with CBS Sports. Football, soccer, calcio, football, it doesn't matter what you call it. This is the world's game, and we want you to be part of the family. Subscribe to Que Golazo, a daily soccer podcast from CBS Sports, bringing you the latest news, analysis, commentary, and an overall celebration of the beautiful game. From the Champions League to the big leagues in Europe, U.S. stories, and the Americas, join us every weekday as our team gives you your daily soccer dose. Look up for our show every morning and subscribe to Que Golazo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. Now get ready to yell, Que Golazo! And now it's our pleasure to welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast, friend of the show, uh, a colleague on CBS Sports HQ. You've seen him in college. You've seen him in pro. You see him on CBS Sports HQ. You see him on Fox Sports. Absolute machine. He's killing it right now. Brady Quinn, how you doing, man? Shit, Barton. Thanks for having me on, guys. I feel like it's been a long time coming. Obviously, I've been listening to you guys' podcast. You guys do a great job, so thanks for having me on. Uh, we wanted to, obviously, with the uh, this sort of two-week turn for, for Notre Dame, let's, let's start right there because there was something that you identified uh, on the 4 p.m. show, college football show, CBS Sports HQ, every single day. All of us are, are frequent contributors there. The, the physical toll that this Notre Dame team took in the Georgia loss, but then also has to turn around and play uh, a Bronco Middenhall coached Virginia team that's coming to South Bend. Like as you're as you're looking at sort of the state of the Irish, you know, how do you think that they're going to be able to handle this two game turnaround to avoid any kind of letdown or hangover situation? Well, the first thing I'll say is they're fortunate that they're, they're playing at home. Um, so, you know, had this been back-to-back road games or, you know, maybe if they had come off that tough matchup versus Georgia and they had to go on the road to Charlottesville, maybe it would have been a different story. But they are coming back home. That should help a little bit. I, I think the toughest thing for them, it's really about the trenches. You know, to me, it's about the offensive line and the defensive line because those are the groups that are, like, the most challenged. And um, the, the challenge more this week, at least offensively speaking, is – you know, Bronco Mendenhall does a really good job of mixing up looks. And so as much as there is a physical toll that was taken last week versus Georgia, you know, this week it's now like locking into a game plan, at least from a protection standpoint, 
that that's kind of difficult to deal with. I mean, they've been one of the best teams, not the best right now in college football, getting pressure on opposing quarterbacks. So um, those guys have to be mentally tough too to bounce back. You know, not really you know focus too much on what happened last week, learn from those mistakes, and then you know get this new game plan where you've got a lot to deal with with this Brockman Mendenhall defense. And on the flip side, you know, the big story of Notre Dame was their lack of ability to stop the run. And, you know, I, I think I looked at the, the Georgia rushing attack, a little bit more conventional, right? Jay Fromm's not going to be yeah. part of that rushing attack as much. And, and, and I wasn't really concerned. You know, I, I was more concerned if they were going to target Swift out of the backfield in the passing game. But, you know, I thought they could do a good job versus more of a conventional rushing attack. That's not what you have in UVA. You know, Bryce Perkins is taking you right back to what you face versus Louisville and even a little bit versus New Mexico when they struggled, a quarterback who can run the football, leading the team in rushing, but also uh, leading the team in passing. So um, they've got their work cut out for them with, with the you know, style of play, I think, for Bronco Mendenhall and his team. And I think we all know, you know th- th- this is the type of coach that wants this one to be a low-scoring, kind of knockdown, drag-out fight. So it- it'll be interesting to see how they respond. I want to pull back the lens a little bit and, and, and take it back to, to last week because, I mean, you're as dialed in as anybody with that Notre Dame program. And, uh, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. I, I was was hoping to see a competitive game, but I, I don't know that I expected to see a competitive game. And, and Notre Dame went out there and really went toe-to-toe with, with Georgia. W- w- did you Were you surprised with what you saw at all? Was was What was your sort of impressions and takeaways from Notre Dame coming out of that weekend? And, and how did that square with, with kind of how you saw them prior to the game? You know, call a bias, call whatever you want. I honestly thought they were going to win. I, I really did. Uh, I thought it would be tight and it would be like one of those last-second drives like maybe we were about to see before everything kind of fell apart in the last couple of plays. But, uh, you know, when I went and visited with them in training camp, and, and this was after I visited with a few other teams, you know, looking at their size, looking at their skill uh, in comparison to like Ohio State, for example, because we always hear it's the Ohio States, the Alabamas, the Georgias, right, that are winning recruiting. Sure. And, and when I went and saw Notre Dame, I'm looking at them and I'm thinking to myself, man, they don't look that different. Like they might not have as much depth, but they're getting there. I mean, they've done a really good job of developing uh, some of these, you know, other guys who are maybe came in a little more slight of frame and putting on some more mass uh, or, and even recruiting and getting in some more guys who've got the prototypical size and frame you're looking for. So, um, you know, maybe they're not quite there, but they've, they've got some guys now. And, you know, that, that kind of led me to think, look, if this team plays mistake-free football and they go in there um, and, and they play the way I think they can, like I actually think it's a good matchup for them. They can win. Now, it didn't work out. They had way too many penalties. That was really surprising to especially – um, coming on the offensive line, just because they're an experienced group and this group's been through a lot. So I wouldn't think that, you know, the the environment in Athens, even though as tough as it is, was going to impact them the way it did. And then the two interceptions, I mean, ultimately, you know, kind of took a lot of that momentum away and, and allowed Georgia to be in the driver's seat, which you can't do on the road, especially in the SEC. So, um, you know, those, those sorts of things kind of stood out to me. But honestly, I think people, you know, they just think, oh, Notre Dame, you know, like, what do they bring to the table? And I said this on the show the other day when we were talking, Barton, you know, 19 draft picks since 2016, five first-round picks since 2016. That's both Georgia and Notre Dame. Like, people have this idea that like, they don't have enough, you know, skill or NFL talent. That Notre Dame has plenty. I mean, they're up there with those guys. So, uh, I really do think they can compete. I just I think it comes down to execution. And there are some things that, obviously, Georgia did better in that game than, than Notre Dame did. 
So what's different about this Notre Dame program right now? I mean, am I wrong that it feels different than, say, five years ago under Brian Kelly? Doesn't it feel, at least for me, it feels right now that I can have more confidence that they're going to show up to these sort of games, that I can look at their schedule preseason and I can say, you know what, all these you know, so-called toss-up games, they'll win all these now. And, and when they play Michigan on the road and when they play Georgia on the road, those teams better be ready to roll because Georgia can come or, or Notre Dame go in there and win it. It feels like there's something different within that program than five or six years ago. Can you put a finger on that? Do you agree with that perception? Uh, I agree with it for um, maybe a, a couple or a few reasons. For starters, I think since Brian Kelly decided to, and it originally started with what, what Chip Long and Mike Elko, um, and, and really kind of took his hands off and just said, I'm going to coach this team and manage this team and not be as involved with one side of the football or the other. And usually it's been the outside, offensive side of the football. I think really since he's done that, it's allowed him to focus on some other things that have really worked out well, I think, for this team, just building them um, as a group, as a team, uh, culturally, and and then figuring out what their identity is. Like right now, if if you and I were sitting here talking about Notre Dame's offense, I think one of the things that they've you know basically been able to to do the last I don't know how many years, probably three or four years, is consistently run the football. You know they've you know brought in these offensive linemen who are big who are physical, and they basically said, look, you know, are we going to compete and, and be able to recruit the best skill position players in the country? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a few guys they can get from time to time, but the other ones, they've, they've got to bring in other guys, and they've got to develop them. And so I think they know, what, they know what their identity is. They know what their niche is, and they know that if they continue to keep getting some of these studs up front on the offensive line, they're going to be able to control games and run the football. The tight end position, I mean, now you're getting to the point where Cole Komet looks like he's going to be another first-round pick. Uh, from Notre Dame. So they're able to recruit positions that I think are almost like a throwback now in college football. That's a changeup for a lot of time, a lot of things that they're going to be presenting to teams. But, you know, I think those two things in particular, like basically being able to step back and manage this whole thing and manage the whole team and then knowing what their identity is, I think that's been huge. And then the final thing is the defense. I think what Mike Elko put in place, you know, what Clark Lee's done uh, has been incredible. I mean, it really has been as far as the teaching. These guys know ball. These guys know what to expect now. Um, it, it's not the you know not, not to disparage anyone, but when Brian Van Gordon was there, it was an NFL system it was too complicated, and there's busts and, and coverage and things like that. Often, you don't see that anymore, and that's a credit to Clark Lee and the job that he's done taking over uh, for Mike Elko and how he's he's helped these young men like really understand the game of football and what offenses are trying to do. Wild scene last week, Friday night, Keaton Slovis is going out. We're just, you know, we're, we're calling in the reliever. Matt Fink comes in and uh, a Utah team that, you know, was gets has Zach Moss, sort of the, the heartbeat of its offense, gets banged up with a shoulder injury. The the twists and turns and, the, and the, like the future of the Pac-12 was all hanging in the balance in uh, in the Coliseum on Friday night. You know, what were some of your impressions from from USC's win against Utah? Well, I, before the game, I talked about the one decisive advantage I thought USC had over Utah was just their skill position on the outside and the perimeter. And so I felt like if USC could get off to a fast start and if they could get those guys out in space versus the secondary for Utah, it, was, it, it could be a long night for Utah, regardless of how well they ran the football with Zach Moss and all that. Well, once Slovis went down, then I was like, okay, yeah. I, I guess we're going to see how this goes. 
And, you know, Matt Smith came in and was not scared by any means. I mean, just – and was able to make a play scrambling and then throw it up, you know, for for a, a big game, for touchdowns, like, or, like early on. And I kind of was thinking, okay, like, this is just the air raid, right? Like, Graham Harrell's instilled into Matt Fink and this quarterback group after Slovis took over for JT Daniels that, like, this is what we do. We throw it up, we take chances, uh, and give those skilled guys a shot. So – uh, it ended up going to fruition, but it, it came much different than I think anyone had anticipated. And then obviously the injury to Zach Moss kind of made it easier, um, at least on the USC defense, to, to, to be able to stop the run or stymie it to some degree. But uh, Matt Fink and just the confidence he had in his teammates uh, in, in what he was being asked to do and his own abilities, uh, just tremendous to, to think about a kid that you know almost transferred, didn't transfer. He talked with us after the set about – it was really about his friends and his teammates and wanting to stay and be with them. And in moments like that, you just kind of step back. And um, I mean, he was starting to get emotional on the set. And, like you were thinking in your head, like this is emotional, right? This is like yeah. a, a formidable time in their lives. And this young man got to step up in a, in a prime time moment and help his team win a football game. And may very well this week, depending on the status of Slovis, <clears throat> that, that's still in the concussion protocol. So, there's a really good chance he's going to be starting on the road versus this uh, this Husky defense coming up this week. And man, what a what a test there because the um, the the challenge if you are USC and if you are you know trying to look at the the future of this quarterback position the the word out of Los Angeles and and I think that you sort of have have hinted at it as well is that there's no rush to try and get Slovis back. You know there there seems to be uh, you, you're trying to to take it as easy as possible. You're, you don't want to be rushing anybody through the concussion protocol anyway, but uh, certainly you don't want to be causing any kind of damage to the health of that quarterback position, which is already a little bit of a thin group. Matt Fink has proven himself, uh, as you mentioned, against this Utah team, but now he faces a uh, Washington defense that is going to be uh, just just trying to find any way to make him make a mistake, to, to get him to throw the ball where he thinks the defender isn't and the defender is going to be. It is... It is a game where we've got like the Vegas point spreads double digits, but I'm still looking at USC. Well, Brady, Brady, you dragged me through text when I put USC in the playoff. That is fair. That was a fair, <laughs> fair criticism. But I mean, this USC team is two and zero with wins over Stanford and Utah in terms of the Pac-12 championship race. They're right there in the thick of it. Do you still, as USC faces Washington, and as the Las Vegas spread is around double digits, do you see USC and Washington as equals in terms of the the Pac-12 pecking order? Well, I, I think they can look like equals if, if Jacob Eason has a night like he did versus Cal, where they lost that game at home, and you know I, there was weather delays and it was kind of funky how that whole thing got started off. And you got to give credit to Justin Wilcox and his staff because defensively, I think they made it you know tougher on him. Uh, but but he's got more games under his belt too, so he probably feels more comfortable um, with with what Coach Hammond's asking him to do up there, at least offensively. So I think if you're if I'm looking at them from what I've seen on film. Um, I would say Washington probably should be a double-digit favorite, especially at home. The, the concern I have for Matt Fink and just USC moving forward is, let's say Keaton Slovis can't even dress this week. I mean, if, if Matt Fink goes down, who is your backup at that point? I think you're talking about a walk-on at this point. So uh, it, it greatly diminishes the ability to distribute the football to the skill guys, the playmakers on the outside. So that's a big concern. And it's, it's even a bigger concern because Fink's athletic. Like, he's going to take off. He's going to buy time. He can try to extend plays. And so that's all good until, you know, someone someone knocks your helmet off, you know, and, and someone takes a, a pretty big shot at you. So 
we'll see uh, how he handles that versus the Husky defense because this is a defense that um, you know flies around the field. I think they do a better job of getting pressure, uh, or will do a better job of getting pressure uh, on Matt Fink than, than Utah did. And, it, and part you know part of the reason is I feel like they're you know they have the ability. Jimmy Lake has the ability to play a variety of coverages. They're pretty simple in what they do. They mostly play post high safety. It's either man or zone for the most part. They'll mix in some cover too every once in a while on some long situations. Um, but what they will do is they'll play some drop eight and they'll rush three, drop eight in the coverage. And that was something that really plagued Keaton Slovis versus BYU. And actually all three picks for that. If, if you go to this matchup, there's a chance that I think that Washington may do that too and see if Matt Fink becomes impatient and if they can eventually get that rush there or something you're seeing more in college football, that's kind of like the flavor of the week. They rush three. And then once, once that running back leaves – and, and, and there creates rush lanes, you'll see a linebacker key blitz. And, and sometimes you see him add late to put pressure on opposing quarterbacks. So I wouldn't be shocked if, if you didn't see something like that. But I just think with, with Washington uh, and the way Chris Peterson likes to control games, control the football, I think this could be a really bad spot for USC. Well, I think, you know, this, this answer, uh, the question I'm about to ask you, you know, we can maybe answer it better after this weekend. But, but I'm curious where – you're at with Clay Helton right now. Um, you know, I mean, you, you're out there in LA every weekend. You're hanging with a couple big Trojans and, and Reggie Bush and Matt Leinart every weekend. There's, I mean, they, they've they've sort of um, exceeded some expectations already, but Clay Helton still is is obviously a a, um, a, a lightning rod uh, nationally. How do you perceive kind of where he's at? currently in that job has, has he proven something to you is it still in a in a prove it mode um should he should he be off the the, the hot seat more so uh, just kind of gauge where you're at with with clay helton right now look he's persevered i think through some tough weeks i mean had that game gone a different way i think we'd be having a different conversation right now this week to to, to be blunt um he is he's a good guy he's a good coach it's just you know, he's not the big name that USC and Hollywood wants, right? Like, that, that's what that's kind of about. I mean, they feel like in order to revive this program, they need to bring in an Urban Meyer. They need to bring in a big name, right? And, you know, I, I got to be honest with you. I, I think there is a deep, uh, deeper issue at play with USC and a lot of the West Coast schools right now um, because you're not seeing as much participation in, in contact football on the West Coast. Um, those numbers are down. And so I think from, you know, just a cultural standpoint, you know, football isn't as, as, as big or isn't as, um, you know, isn't played as much as what it once was. And so that recruiting pool we're talking about, the skill players are still there. It's just not the offensive linemen and not, not a lot of the defensive linemen. And so you've got to really be able to recruit and go elsewhere to do it. And, and that becomes a little bit more difficult, right? Because now you're talking about going to the Midwest, going to Texas, going to the South and trying to pull guys out of there. Mario Cristobal's got a really good stamp there. And so I think you know, the group he inherited at Oregon's already pretty solid, and he's coached them up well. But that's something to keep an eye on in the future for Oregon, if they're able to get some of those big boys. Um, but, you know, USC, to me, hasn't. Uh, we, were, we were talking before that Friday night game. They hadn't had an offensive lineman drafted in the first two rounds since 2012. I mean, it's, it, it's, wow. it's kind of damning to hear that stat. And I want to say they had, like, three drafted since, like, 2015 off the top of my head 
Uh, and, I was, and I was sitting up there with Reggie and Matt, and I, I talked to him, I said, how many of your offensive line got drafted? They go, every single one. <laughs> and so when, yeah. when you think about Dick, the, the issue with this, you can run the air raid, run whatever offense you want. It doesn't matter if you can't protect. It doesn't matter if, if you can't you know, be able to beat up the other team on the other side of the football, even with some of the defensive linemen. And that, to me, is what's been missing at USC. They have not been able to match their recruiting of the skill position with, with the big boys up front. And it's very glaring and obvious how small they looked compared to Utah. And, and look, if, 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 you know, if, if Zach Moss doesn't get hurt in that game, I don't know how it impacts it. You know, maybe it would have changed you know, the dynamics of it a little bit. Who knows? Um, to be quite honest with you, a number of those, those passes that Michael Pittman came down with, that even Amon Ross St. Brown, you know, Morgan Scowley and Kyle Whittingham are probably sitting with the defense going, come on, man. Like, yeah. a couple of those plays, I mean, they're, they're kind of sheer luck. So, yeah. had, you know, had that game turned out differently, we're, again, we're probably having a different conversation. There's probably a lot of rumors about, you know, one of the guys I work with. Uh, but, but the bottom line is, even if, if that was to come to reality, you know, after this year, and they were to move on, whoever takes over this job – they're going to have a really hard time building it back up if, if you can't get your team to look like Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State and LSU. And I think, you know, the, the people that stand out the most is the guys up front and on the offensive line and defensive line. And that's just – it's something that you don't see right now there. And it's, uh, it's a bit surprising. I think it's harder to build back up than they think. You said something interesting when uh, we were on shout-out uh, CBS HQ college football show. You're talking about the the quarterback. Uh, I guess the Heisman race is maybe where the conversation was. And you mentioned that you felt like Tua Tungavailoa was the kind of the front runner right now. And I thought that was interesting because I, I feel like we may have talked to you this exact week last year, and you were sort of pumping the brakes on Tua. Um, what, what have you seen this year that you really like about Tua? I mean, this is a. I feel like we're we're in a little bit of a golden era of of quarterbacks right now when you just look at Jalen Hurts, Sam Ellinger, Tua, Fromm, um, Justin Fields, hey maybe Jacob Eason if he balls out this weekend can get in that mix. I mean there's just a lot of really good arms out there. Um, Tua's as good as any of them but but I'm curious what what has caught your attention about him so far this year and and, and maybe who else you've you've uh, you sort of uh, has, has caught your eyes as well. Yeah, I think I think the thing that's impressed me about Tua is, you know, he, he's doing it. I feel like even faster pace than what it was last year, and then he's doing it really without much balance or running game. You know, last year I think you looked at Alabama and they were running the football more successfully at this point, and I haven't really felt like they've got it going quite as much. Um, but granted, I mean they've they've got such a again a, a gifted group of wide receivers on the outside, which we've talked about on HQ at, at length. But um, I think that's what's been impressive to me is like he's kind of continued to you know, do what you expect him to do and still, you know, be able to be uh, even a step better considering that he's not getting as much help as he was a year ago. So that's, that's one of the things that's kind of stood out. Um, and, and that, you know, again, I mean, he's he's got a great feel for the game. You know, continuing to watch him more and more. Um, you know, last year you'd see him at times, you're like, all right, like some of that feels like maybe it's just more backyard football. But I think the more he's – you know, gotten within this offense. Again, there's been a change at offensive coordinator too, and that always, you know, takes a toll, but it, it, you're still trucking with him. He's still doing the same things we saw um, last year too. So I, I think that's been impressive to me as well. So just you know, dealing with the change, you know, dealing with not as much help and still putting up those numbers and even more impressive numbers, that, that's kind of stood out to me. Uh, Fields and, and his transition to Ohio State, you know, his first year starting a new offense, all these new guys you're throwing to, 
uh, just putting up ridiculous stats. And I, I know they haven't necessarily played the most difficult uh, opponent yet. You know, it'll turn up a little bit this week in Lincoln versus Nebraska, but uh, it, it's been fun to watch him develop. And I think I've been most impressed with him and his development from you know FAU to what he looked like even in week two versus Cincinnati to even what he was you know looked like at Indiana and and, and then moving forward. So you know every single week he seems to look more comfortable more poised uh, and more confident in, in what they're asking him to do. And so that, that to me is one that I'd keep an eye on because they might very well clean the slate with everyone they're going to face this year. I'm not really sure anyone uh, looks like a formidable opponent besides, you know, having to play Wisconsin, which they do play in regular season play before they, they'd have to potentially meet them again in the big 10 championship. Um, you know, and, and obviously Joe Burrow is a great story, you know, just seeing the impact that Joe Brady, their passing game coordinator has had on that offense and with Joe Burrow uh, to me, it's been it's been fun to watch them. I mean, because they're they're essentially running some NFL scheme at the college football level, and there he's just dissecting. It's like he's a surgeon back there, and it's fun to watch because I think more schools could do that, and I think you might see more guys who are in these assistant level positions, uh, more guys who are, you know aren't necessarily the play caller at the NFL level. They say, you know what, I'll come down if someone will pay me a, a good amount of money to call plays because. I can dissect and dice up these defenses all day. I mean, the, the scheme that they're running right now gives him a lot of answers before the snap of the football and allows him to be really effective in distributing it to, to whether it's Chase or Jefferson or whoever else you're talking about. I mean, they, they've got a ton of playmakers too. So those those three to me, I think right now are the front runners and have really kind of stood out, at least at the quarterback position. So we've seen LSU uh, go on the road to Texas. That's the the best test that we've seen. We've seen Georgia take on a Notre Dame team at home. As you look at those two, who would you pick as the better challenge to Alabama? I think it's LSU. Um, I just think with what I've seen from them, uh, their passing attack seems like it'd be incredibly difficult to stop. And between the offensive line play that I think it's been pretty solid so far. I don't know that they've really been tested by a rush either. Uh, that's no disrespect to Texas. It's just, you know, they're kind of weak up front. You know, Todd Orlando has to dial up more pressures in order to, to be able to get pressure. So um, I would say probably LSU, just with the combination of, of Burrow. I don't know that he's ever going to put them in a bad spot uh, or make those sorts of mistakes. Kind of a little bit reminiscent of what we saw from Clemson last year in the national championship game versus Alabama. And I think defensively, if they're healthy, um, they'll they'll have some of the skilled players who can match and, and compete with what you're seeing at Alabama. Um, although I'm not sure anyone can really match up with those wide receivers. But, but I, would, I would think LSU would give them the best shot. The most unfortunate part, obviously, is you know they have to play in Tuscaloosa. Um, so that, that's going to be their biggest challenge. But, I mean, hey, they, they pulled one out in Austin already. Uh, Texas is a good football team, so – you know, maybe they'll be able to pull that one out as well. Eight years ago, that game in the regular season was nine to six in extra time, and it's about to be forty-five to forty-two in Tuscaloosa on November. What's 9th. the point total going to be on that one? It's going to be in like the seventies, right? Like the, the oh, Vegas like the point Vegas, total? yeah, seventy-three. Yeah, that's seventy-three. Thing. I, I was just going to say, like, I, I would see like seventy-one, maybe. But if an SEC in between those two teams, I feel like. I would be shocked if it didn't start at like 68 and then creep its way up into like the low 70s, depending on how the money was going. Because I also think there's a fair amount of, um, you know, that both these teams know each other. And so I think we're yeah. more familiar with those schemes. Like sometimes that's going to bring down a lot of that offensive production that we're seeing early on in the season. 
Brady is is uh is the Jim Harbaugh era like is is this just a road to nowhere right now or is there a way out of this thing? Is there is there a way out? Meaning like can, can, can they can they can, can they get 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 up to the level of Michigan once? I think they can. I was actually just breaking down uh, the Wisconsin game before uh, before we jumped on here and and there's so big picture. There's a few things that I'm thinking about as I'm watching this and really just following Michigan uh, over the past couple of years now and just watching Harbaugh, like, does he really want to coach and be there? Mm. I mean, I, I say that only because I'm questioning like his energy, his enthusiasm, how he, how he handles the team, like the way they came out off of a bye on the road versus Wisconsin, a big game that could have been, could have been a statement game for him. Right. And let's be honest. That could have been like, hey, we're Michigan, we're here, and, and we're gonna beat we're gonna beat Wisconsin, and we're gonna go on and win the Big Ten, and, and that obviously encompasses beating Ohio State. But you know, it was one of those moments where, like, him as a former player, him as a head coach, he had every opportunity to get his team fired up and coming out there like ready to rock and roll and just whip whoever was across from him on the field, and it was the exact opposite. Um, I just watching him, it's almost like he doesn't have the same type of like energy, enthusiasm, or confidence that he even had as a player, and then at times maybe even as a head coach. And so I just, you know, you kind of wonder, like, how much longer does he want to do this? Like, I don't think Michigan's going to move on from him. The buyout in his contract's really big. And, and look, he was, he was deemed to be the savior. So where do you go next anyway? Like, we're going to move on from him to someone else? I mean, it's just, it seems unlikely. So I, I think the more likely – scenario if there was going to be someone coaching Michigan besides Jim Harbaugh would him be just stepping down and stepping away from football just to be with his family so that that that's just the question that as I'm watching him and, watch, and watching the whole thing and his team lacked that energy and that that sort of excitement that you want to see especially in a college football game it, it's one of the things that kind of struck me as as just kind of interesting and something to kind of maybe percolate about but um here's what I'd say about their offense so um, for example, the, the big play they had to Ronnie Bell to start Ronnie Bell to start that game, you know, wasn't by design, right? He's running a 10 to 12 yard crossing route. Shea Patterson buys time. Bell makes a play um, near the sideline. Uh, Wisconsin defender misses a tackle and he ends up running down to set them up to score. And then all of a sudden they've got with Ben Mason and I think they're they're full back in, which running the football there I'm a little bit. I know Zach Charbonnet was a little bit banged up, but you, know, you, you still have some other running backs in your roster that maybe would have made made more sense there, um, but. You know, just watching their offense, there, there's no identity. There is no really flow to it. Um, you know, you, if, if you were just going to day one create an offense, you would want to be able to have balance, right? So some run plays, some pass plays, and probably some play-action pass plays off of those run plays, right? And you just don't see anything really sync up like that. Um, they don't stretch the field vertically. You know, watching the, the Wisconsin DBs, I don't know if I saw a safety, or especially early on in the game, where the game was still somewhat competitive, be more than 14 yards deep. I mean, they were creeping up at times to 10 yards. Like they just had no respect for this really talented and skilled, you know, group of wide receivers for Michigan because Josh Gaddis isn't throwing the football down the field. He didn't do it till it was too late in the ball game. And so everything's crossing routes. Everything's kind of short and everything's kind of choppy. It's like they're afraid to just say, look, we can just go up and throw a go route. Like I'm supposed to be this guru coming in to help with a spread offense. It's not that complicated. Just throw a few go-routes. Let Donovan Peoples-Jones or Tariq Black or Nico Collins go up and get it, right? 
Yeah, um, that, that's sort of what your strength is on the outside, anyways, right? Is those big, long, right? You know, yeah. So it's so it's surprising that they're not really tapping into that. Their offensive line uh, didn't play great, and and you know, it's it, it's the inconsistency of it. Like at times you see them protect fine, at times the running game they're okay, and then other plays it's just busts. And it's typically on the interior. I think you know from left left guard to right guard. That's where I see more of the issues a little bit from time to time, even though the tackles haven't played great either. But even the running backs in pass pro, you know, there was one of the, the sacks early on in the game that I'm looking at, and the left guard puts hands on one of the linebackers, and the running back at the time, I believe it was Turner, he thought he had maybe the other linebacker. But And there's a, there's a golden rule. In protection, look, you put your hands on them, you take them, okay, especially between the offensive lineman and a running back because – once, once if, if you're a running back, a lot of times you're trying to clean up the mess if the offensive line lets a guy through. But if, if, an, if a running back sees a guy put his hands on him as they're trying to pressure or bring a blitz, they're assuming that you're taking him. It's only between offensive linemen where they can pass guys off. So the running back's then looking elsewhere to get help. And so on one of the early sacks, you know, that was exactly what happened. A linebacker kind of was sitting up in the line of scrimmage. He ends up blitzing. The, the left guard puts his hands on him and then lets go because it was the responsibility of the running back. But at that point in time, you know, Turner had looked for work elsewhere and then it ends up being a sack. So it's little things like that where you just get the sense that the offense that they're trying to install is going to take some time. Or, or maybe it's just Josh Gattis isn't proficient at that. He's a first-year play caller. It's first time really doing this. So I'm not sure where he kind of got deemed with the, the, the you know tag of guru. He's supposed to be the savior, but – uh, their offense is much more, you know, bigger work in progress than people think. And then just quickly on the defense, I, I don't know how Don Brown's let this defense get out of like the just the ability to be have gap control. I mean, they're talented enough. They could be able to line up play four three if that was the scheme or three four cover three the entire game and beat most teams. So I, I'm not sure if they need to simplify or what they feel like they need to do, but they're having a really hard time, at least versus Wisconsin they did, you know, having a guy assigned to each gap and having a guy control that gap, uh, which is a bit surprising because I think their defense is too good to have so many big plays like they did versus Wisconsin. Well, since you're there in the film room, um, what what about the other side? Because there's this, as as we're starting to spin Wisconsin forward, I'm, I'm trying to, to work through my mind. I'm like, all right, well, it is possible that with the way – uh, this Wisconsin defense has sort of snapped back into place. It, it, they could go against all these other teams on their schedule and probably hold them under, you know, outside of Ohio State, probably hold them 14 points or less. Like, are you are you seeing um, things that, from the Badgers that, you know, in, a, in addition, obviously, to the, the running attack led by Jonathan Taylor, I, I think that it's some of these other things, particularly defensively, that if they are that, you know, schematically sound and just sort of squeezing the life out of teams, I mean, that that is a way to, to make it all the way back to the Big Ten championship game and uh, and try and contend with Ohio State for the Big Ten title. Oh, they're going to be playing the Big Ten championship game. I mean, they're by far and away the best team in the Big Ten West. So uh, unless they just fall flat on their face like that, they're, they're playing, they'll be an Indy. Uh, it just and, and it doesn't even matter what what happens versus Ohio State in my opinion because um, because I do think they'll still rebound from that. The the interesting thing is, is when you start thinking about them like okay, but do they have a realistic shot of beating Ohio State and then getting into the college football playoff? Like that's the real question. Right. And my thing is, we haven't seen a team make them play outside of their game. Their game is running the football, controlling the clock, playing really good defense, and then having Jack Cohn do just enough but not too much, right? 
And so they're dangerous if, if, if they can get you to play that way. I'm just not quite a believer yet in Jack Cohn being able to really, if, if the game gets put on his shoulders, be able to dominate and be able to throw the football around like they're going to need to. And outside of Quintez Cephas, who is, is their fastest wide receiver and I think a legitimate guy who they can go to versus some of the better defenses, I'm, I, again, I think the other, the other guys are going to have a hard time separating. So, uh, you know, what's, what's Wisconsin going to look like playing from behind? I don't know because I'm not necessarily sure that it's going to be a team until Ohio State that's going to force them to have to play from behind um, and, and, then, and then get out of their style of play or the way they'd like to play. Because I think that makes one Jack Cone and their offensive line and their offense in general vulnerable and puts them in a tough spot. But I also think it puts their defense in a tougher spot. You know, because if you go back and watch, you know, Michigan. I mean, Michigan got trampled early on so bad that it was hard to think that you know they could open up really everything they wanted to do. I mean, at some point too, you're kind of thinking, okay, they're a one-dimensional football team, and that plays right in the hand of what Jim Leonard wants to do. So, you know, for me, I think we'll. We'll know the true identity of this Wisconsin team and how legitimate they are once we see them get down 14 points. And then, like, if they can in the fourth quarter or second half of the game, you know, come back playing a style that's less conventional for them. I think the question for me, at least for Wisconsin, is are they Georgia? I mean, everyone's crowned Georgia as college football playoff worthy. And when I just, you know, when you look at Wisconsin, fundamentally they're they're very similar in the way they want to do things what they asked Jack Cohn to do is similar to what George asked Jake Fromm to do it seems like Jake Fromm you know he had to throw it in the second half and that's how Georgia ultimately pulled away from Notre Dame I guess you know to your point is is when if Cohn is asked to do that in the second half against someone can he get it done is is there do you see right now just based on the eye test do you see a significant gap between what George is and what Wisconsin is well, I do in regards to at least team speed. I mean, defensively speaking, too, that's what jumped off the page for me at Georgia. Like, there wasn't – there's a few guys who kind of stood out, but watching the tape and just preparation for that to, for that game, um, overall they have more team speed. I don't feel like they're as vulnerable in the secondary. And, and look, the Wisconsin secondary has got some players. I just think overall you don't see them flying around quite as much. Yeah. Um, you know, Jonathan Taylor's a different back compared to Swift. Obviously, right? Swift is probably a little better in space, you know, being quicker, making guys miss, a little bit more of that home run hitting ability, even though Jonathan Taylor's fast um, and has good top end speed. I think, yeah, I kind of have to build up to it a little bit, right? And it's a more of a bruising back. And he has improved in catching, but it's still not necessarily, I think, a staple that you're going to see as much as Swift's going to be um, targeted. Well, I should say really the running back because they have so many there at Georgia. Um, I, another thing is we've seen Jake Fromm on the big stage do it. You know, we, we've, we've seen him on the big stage compete at a really, really high level uh, early in his career, and we, we've still seen it. With, with again, Jack Cohn, I mean, this is uncharted territory. And so that's why I'm kind of I'm kind of curious to see, like, what he's going to look like. I mean, we called uh, a Wisconsin-Northwestern game last year. I believe it was Jack Cohn's first start in Evanston. And they were raving about it before the game. I'm like, okay, well, we'll, we'll see what this guy's got. Because – we see a lot of freshmen or guys, you know, when, when staff get excited about a guy coming in, they, they usually light the world on fire. I, I don't remember him particularly really sticking out that day. And obviously Northwestern ended up winning because they ended up winning the Big Ten West last year. And, and Clayton Thorson didn't play well. And so I'm, I'm kind of sitting there watching this game thinking like, all right, like this, this wasn't really the impressive uh, debut <laughs> performance that I thought we were going to get from him. So I just – I'm not sure how that, that, you know, that moment 
is going to be for Jack Cohen if he can really, you know, have the sort of performance that he's going to need to 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 beat at Ohio State to get into the college football playoff and then see what that even looks like. He is Brady Quinn. You can see him on CBS Sports HQ. You can see him on Fox Sports. Yeah, Brady, you're the absolute best. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us here. Oh, always a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on, guys. Have a great day. Yo, it's two-time Super Bowl champion, Bryant McFadden, also known as BMAC. Mike check, one, two, one, two. And that's Patrick Peterson, a fellow cornerback, my cousin, and now my co-host on the new podcast, All Things Covered, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. This season, Pat will go from the football field on Sundays to the studio on Mondays to bring you the perspective of an active player at the top of his game. And the name says it all. Sure, we'll catch up with Pat P on how he and the Cardinals are faring. But we'll also talk about other sports, our personal interests, and social issues. Then we'll cover even more with a prominent guest each week. With 17 years of NFL cornerback experience between the two of us, we think you'll enjoy our coverage skills. So download and subscribe now to get weekly episodes released first thing Tuesday morning. All Things Covered is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found. <laughs> 